0: Uh, This morning's readings from Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. (coughs) Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like the burning of coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As the appearance of the wheels, their construction, their appearance was like the uh, the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, and when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose, Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal, spread above their heads, and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And where they when they went I heard the sounds of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came from a voice above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, a gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Um, It's so lovely to be with you this morning. Um, I, I don't know if being number five is a good thing, um, I didn't realize I was the last one until uh, Lucas said it, but um, uh, yeah, I suppose like others have said, um, our prayers have been very much with, uh, with all of you in this season, uh, particularly with Lucas and with Sue and the family. Um, we love them so much, and we've enjoyed very, very many wonderful times with them uh, over the years. Um, I, I'm glad that I get to be with you today. Uh, Lucas and I go back right to the early days of Acts 29. Our hair was grungier. And um, I think we looked considerably uh, scruffier um, as well. You've certainly smartened up. I've gone for kind of the cult leader kind of uh, slightly look, which is not what we're going for. But anyway, here is my guess. My guess is that for many of you, Ezekiel is a closed book. Uh, There'll be parts of the Bible that you're very familiar with, but this probably isn't one of them. That was certainly the case when we preached a series through this earlier in the year uh, back in Leeds. Um, we had people who'd maybe heard one or two sermons, Valley of Dry Bones. That's what we normally think of, if you think of anything when it comes to Ezekiel. And, um, and we'd had one couple. They'd been in, they have they, been in Bible preaching churches for nearly 40 years. And they came up to us after the first sermon and they said, We've never heard a series in Ezekiel. We, we just we're really excited about this. Now the reason that many people have never really gone further into Ezekiel is chapter 1. Can I just be honest? It's chapter 1. It is the chapter that you just heard. Because you get 28 verses at the beginning of the book and you think, what, what in the world is this? I'm going to go for another book. Um, you know, I was going to try and get through this, but I don't know what this means. This, is, this seems just wild. It's so intimidating. Ezekiel is full of pictures as a book. Um, It's full of unbelievable, bright, vivid pictures. It's a very visual book, but that often makes it seem a a very wild book. The pictures are provocative, they're confusing, they're they're offensive sometimes, Um, and they're symbolic too. Can I just say that at the beginning? No one is supposed to reach out to one and go, ah, that's what God looks like. That's not what Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel is for, but it makes it feel like a very strange book. But I know that what you believe and practice here at Village is what the Bible claims for itself, which is that all of it is for all of us. It's what we believe. None of it is meant to be closed. Some of it can be hard, but none of it is off limits. God gives us a book of incredible diversity and range, and he does it for a reason. So it may be that for some of you, Ezekiel 1 will connect with you in ways that other parts of Scripture just simply don't. Or it will connect with you in a different type of way. So let me say it's fine to feel disorientated. It's fine to feel uncomfortable. It's fine to feel a bit on the edge. But just be open to this today. Be open to this. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if today's the first time you've ever opened a Bible, it's not all like this. But I think you'll be surprised at how how important this is for us to understand. Because I think Ezekiel 1 is maybe the Bible's most powerful description of the glory of God. One of the most vivid descriptions. Ezekiel is a prophet, he's a messenger of God, and it is a dark time in the history of God's people at this moment in the book. All of the events in Ezekiel happen after God's people had been defeated. They'd suffered a crushing defeat. The superpower of Babylon, which was the major power in the world at the time, had conquered them, and they take the capital city of Jerusalem. And what happened is the Babylonians had taken the ruling classes. They'd taken all of the the key leaders, the people of influence, including religious leaders, back to Babylon. So they'd they'd ripped them out of their homeland. They'd taken them back to Babylon. And Ezekiel was a trainee priest at the time. And he is one of the ones who's been removed from the place that he loved, and he's been taken away to Babylon. And it's on his 30th birthday. It's five years after this exile has happened. And we are told in verse 1... The heavens opened. And he receives this vision. God pulls back the curtain, and Ezekiel gets this this vision of God. It's a strange vision. It's a vision of storms and pulsating brightness. There's, There's a figure on a moving throne. It's full of descriptions of fire and burning and jewels and crystals. There's an overwhelming sound that accompanies all of this. It's a sound like roaring waterfalls or an army at war. Now, we're going to look at some of the details, but, but please don't miss the overall impression. The overall impression at the end of chapter one is designed to take the breath away. It's designed to leave you reeling. That's, that's what it's supposed to do. My, my eldest son, um, he's 11. He's just started high school. Um, and so he's exposed to a, a fresh and vibrant new vocabulary. Um, and so he'll come back with words, and I thought I understood, um, you know, what the kids on the street were saying. It turns out I didn't, um, and he comes back with these phrases, and sometimes, he's stopped now asking, Dad, what does this mean? Um, but one of my favorites was when we were talking about something, and, uh, and he just went, he just looked at me and went, oh, mind blown, like this, and that was his thing for a week, and I was, I was thinking as I was kind of preparing for this, that's a really good reaction to have here. So if you, if you come to the end of it and you just think, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's not a bad place to be. But there's more, there's more to say than that. Let me, let me show us three things. Three things to, to help navigate this. <clears throat> what, what Ezekiel sees, then what Ezekiel does, and the third thing, what, why it matters. So here's the first thing. What Ezekiel sees? What, what does he see? Now, what he sees is undoubtedly strange. I won't try and explain every detail, but there are three parts to this image, and we'll look at them. Here's the first one. It's the four living creatures. You get this from verse 5 to verse 14. Now, later on in, in the book, in chapter 10, Ezekiel will tell us that these are cherubim. They're cherubim, and they're, they're being similar to angels. Now, in the Bible, they are always connected and always serve God. So that's what we have presented. Now, the description of them seems bizarre to us. They have the legs of a bull. They have a human-like body. They have four wings, hands under the wings, four faces. This is utterly distant to us, utterly distant to any frame of reference we have. But here is the thing. To Ezekiel, it wasn't. To Ezekiel, it wasn't. Every day Ezekiel would have walked around Babylon, he saw images similar to these ones. They are in the architecture all around him. In religious art and statues, he would have seen figures similar to this. In fact, if you go to the British Museum in London, you'll see exactly the kind of things he saw. You'll see exactly these kind of statues. Figures were always associated, like this, were always associated with a king or a god. Supporting their throne, defending their empire. And when you understand that, you understand more about these four faces. If you look at verse 10... He says, he says, the likeness of the faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left. The four had the face of an eagle. Again, so bizarre to us, but at the time, very familiar. A lion was a symbol of royalty. It was always used to present and associated with royalty. An eagle was associated with stateliness, with kind of a bearing. An ox was a symbol of the divine, and a human, well, Human was made, someone made in the image of the gods, someone made by the gods. See, these were connected with majesty and power. That's what these images are about. They're connecting with the divine. But did you notice what the figures were doing? I know it's hard to kind of keep track in here, but they're constantly on the move. Verse 14 says they're, they're kind of darting to and fro, moving like lightning. How do they do that? Well, that's the next part. It's the wheels. You get from verse 15 to 21. This description of, of these strange wheels. Now, this whole thing can effortlessly move in any direction it wants to. Up, down, across, it can do whatever. But it's not the wings that move it. The wings are holding up the throne that we'll get to in a moment. When it moves, the wings make sounds. But it's the wheels. These, these wheels move this throne around. And there is a wheel at the foot of each figure. And in their wheel, there seems to be another wheel. Can I... Don't worry too much, you're not supposed to, this is not a blueprint. Okay, you're not supposed to go home and make one, or even try and draw one. This is, this is an image. It's a picture, and it's designed to show movement to anywhere and everywhere. Absolutely anywhere. Now, why does it need to move? Well, every other statue that Ezekiel would have seen with figures like these ones would have stood still. They had a single place to guard, a single temple they were connected with. A symbol deity and a, si- a single place. But that's not the vision of this God. This God is everywhere and anywhere. This God moves from place to place. This God is a, a global God and not a local one. What Ezekiel sees is different from everything around him. And, and within, within this chapter, there are lots of fours in the vision. There are four living creatures, there are four wings, there are four faces. <clears throat> now, why not two? Why not three? If you're going to have four faces, why not have five or six or ten? What is it about four? Well, it's another symbol. The the way that people would have spoken about the world at this time was by saying the four corners of the earth. Or sometimes you would say the four winds. But it was a way of describing everywhere. It was something that people would have understood at this time. The repetition of four is another way of God saying, I am global. I am everywhere. I'm in all four corners of this globe. He moves around the known world, and he's utterly free. See, that's why it says in verse 20, it's the Spirit of God who moves the wheels. Listen to verse 20. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. The wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. His throne can go anywhere, because he is king everywhere even in Babylon. And on top of the wheels held up by the four living beings is a is final part of this vision. It's the throne. It's verse 22 to verse 28. Above all of this, resting on a strange but beautiful expanse that shines with, with a white brightness is a throne. And, and through somehow this, this white brightness, the throne itself shines blue like sapphire like the most incredible jewel. And on the throne is a figure in human form. And through the whiteness of the light, the blue light of the throne, you have the figure himself glowing fiery orange in the center. And as he glows fiery orange, radiating out from him all the colors of the rainbow around the edges. Here you have this vision of God in the likeness of a human. Now, not exactly a human, Ezekiel is careful to say that. He says the appearance is of a man. Now he's seen this vision. He's seen all of the glory of this vision. And it's, and it's at this point though, he's, he seems to realize what he's looking at. Because in verse 28, you see what he does. He sees the figure and he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. He collapses face down. It's not surprising. Taken as a whole, the vision is, is of overwhelming power. Four living creatures, servants of gods and kings, symbols of royalty and divinity. The throne of a king drenched in power, free to move around the globe, around the known world, free to go wherever he wants. This king has authority and control and movement and freedom. So Ezekiel does the only... Reasonable thing to do, he falls on his face. He falls on his face. Now let me show you exactly why he does that. We're going to look at what he does here. I don't. Even after twenty minutes of looking looking at this, I wonder: Are you still a bit confused about this vision? Feels like it never quite comes into focus. I've spent so long in this passage, and I still feel like it's not quite come into focus. And it's deliberate. It's for a reason. The whole way through, Ezekiel keeps saying this it was like. It has the appearance of. And then you get to the climax. And let, did you notice again when I read verse 28? Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. What does he see? He sees the likeness of the glory of God, not the fullness of the reality. The likeness. Here is what Ezekiel is saying. Listen, I'm sketching this out. I'm showing you the glory of God, but it's really indescribable. Have you ever heard that phrase that someone, um, someone describes a book as being unfilmable? And what they normally mean by that is it's, the book is too complex, it's too detailed, it's too intricate or strange, that the scale of the vision is just too big to capture in a single film. That is what Ezekiel is saying here. I can't get this down. The glory of God is unfilmable. You can't capture the glory of God. There's what one writer calls a beyondness to the glory of God. But this is what you need to see. Even the likeness of the glory of God, even the outer fringes of his glory, is enough to buckle your knees and transform the direction of your life. See, from this moment forward, Ezekiel changes. Nothing is more significant in the whole of his life than this experience. But it nearly wrecks him. In chapter 3, he says, I'm unable to do anything for a week after a vision. He has this vision. He says, I can do nothing. He's almost paralyzed by it for a whole week. And he refers back to this vision throughout the rest of the book. And from this point onwards, God is utterly central to Ezekiel's vision of the world. Everything is viewed through the centrality of God. His whole message is relentlessly God-centered, more than any other prophet. More than 60 times in this book, it's the center of this book. The phrase is repeated, then they will know that I am the Lord. That is the center of this book. See, here is what this means. It means there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. That you really have to encounter the glory of God. See, Ezekiel knew all of this intellectually. He knew it. He was a priest. He was a trained priest. But in this vision, it becomes an intensely personal experience for him. And it's an experience that shapes the whole of his life and existence. See, listen, you can say, I I go to church. You can say, I believe in God. But that's different from a life-changing encounter with him. How do you know when that happens? Well, in some way, it will knock you off your feet. And it will bring you down off your high horse as well. It takes away the self-righteousness. It humbles you. It places you on your face. Because how can it do anything but that? See, the more you're filled with the glory of God, the less you're filled with disdain or bitterness or mockery or boasting or a sense of how great you are. You have to be humbled you know that comes as a, a, pretty much an assault on the whole view of the world that most of us are taught. Most of what we have believe and what we've been taught is that we are central to the world, that we are the ones who the world should revolve around, that we are the most significant thing in this world. The Bible has a word for that, which is sin. Sin is, in many ways, an, a relentless focusing on the self. Not in a wholesome and a good way, but it's a relentless bending in on the self, a curving in on the self, an insistence that everything else must spin around you. Sin, in essence, is pressing God to the side and elevating ourselves. But here is the thing none of us, none of us was meant to find meaning and purpose and joy and significance in curving in on ourselves. Instead, We were made to find joy and purpose and significance as we orbit around the greatness and glory of God. Ezekiel's vision of God is a God who is unbelievably powerful. He appears in the midst of the most powerful nation on earth as king. I want you just to understand that. God shows up in Babylon and says, I am just as much in charge here as I was in Jerusalem. There is no place where he's not king. And that brings comfort and challenge. All rolled into one, there's a comfort and a challenge. Here is the comfort, let me start there. See, the word glory has profound depths in the Bible. It's a word that has to do with weight and substance. God is showing us his majestic reality, his glory above everything else. And he uses the symbols of Babylonian religion, but it's like he blows through them. So the symbols can't contain him because no one has freedom and glory and power like him. His glory means he rules all. He rules all. All history, all earthly empires, nations and rulers and kings and global realities. He is the one who is still sovereign over all. What a comfort it is to know that there is a God like that. Especially when your situations and circumstances feel like they overwhelm you. Gaze upon the greatness of this God. See his power. See his glory. The one who is enthroned above the heavens brings an immense comfort. But here is the challenge. He is on a throne And that means he must be the most important thing. His will and who he is must be more important than anything else. It is the weight beyond every other weight in our lives. He has authority in your life too. Let me walk that out more practically. So if you say, and maybe you do this morning, you say, I... I I don't want to or I can't believe in a God who would do this or judge people like that or would believe in these kind of things or would say these kind of things. If you say that, do you know what you're saying? What you're really saying is, I don't want a God of glory. I don't want a glorious God. I don't want a God beyond my comprehension. I want a God who I can figure out in every single way. I want a God who I can comprehend fully. And see, when you say... Even when you say something like, well, listen, I can't believe that part of the Bible or a God who does this, it doesn't make sense to me. When you say that, if you say to God, everything has to make sense for me to believe in a God like you, you're saying to God, you must fit my understanding. Do you know what that is? That's trying to get the Atlantic Ocean in a thimble. That's what that's like. It can't be done. There's a story told about Abraham Lincoln. Listen. Don't come and tell me it's not true later. It may not be. Um, for the purpose of this illustration, I think it, it should be. Um, but there's a story. um a president of the United States during the Civil War, and a lady asked him if he thought that God was on their side. And he said to have turned and replied, Madam, I'm less concerned whether God is on our side than whether we are on his side. Now listen, I don't know if he said it. But the thought behind that is so deep. That's the difference, you see. You can't make God fit you. You can't make him walk lines that you try and set. The moment you do that, he's robbed of glory. And you no longer have the true God. He's not a tame God. He's infinitely beyond. His glory means he's beyond you. Let me show you why this matters. I've been trying to show you that. But let me, let me, let me kind of finish with walking this one out. Why does it matter you you understand the glory of God. Here is the first thing. It's because you won't understand yourself until you understand his glory. What you think about God frames what you think about yourself. See, without understanding God, you will never understand yourself. Um, John Calvin, who was a French pastor and theologian in the 1500s, uh, he wrote one of the most influential Christian books ever written, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And the book, the whole book begins with this. begins like this. The whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Now, do you hear what Calvin says? He says, if you want to be wise if you want to understand life and how life works, you have to know yourself and you have to know God. You have to know those two things. You can't just have one. To know who you are, to know how to be a human, you have to know God as well. And to know God is to know him in his glory. Until you see God as glorious, you have not yet met him. You've not yet encountered him. See, this isn't abstract. This isn't far out. As as strange as Ezekiel one sounds, this is this is about how you understand who you are. Before you can know yourself, you must know God. Knowing God like this is is about how you live. See, if you don't understand you don't understand God, you will never understand yourself. And look, here, here's another thing: you will not understand sin until you understand glory. See, the rest of the book of Ezekiel pushes you to some very hard places. You see God's judgment against the sin of his people, but none of it will make sense. And in fact, the whole thing that the Bible makes about what sin is and why sin matters, you will never make sense of until you have this view of God. Sin will always be a small thing until you see the greatness of God. Until you see what he's like. Let let me show you this. There's a part in the Old Testament where King David uh, desires a woman. He's married. She is married, but he uses his power as a king to, uh, to bring her in. He sleeps with her. Anyway, he then uses his position as king to have her husband killed, and she is made to be one of his wives. Now, David is brought to a place of confession before God. And uh, you have his prayer of confession, his account of it in Psalm fifty-one. And here is what David prays as he goes through the, the, the uh, kind of the process. Psalm fifty-one and verse four. He says, "Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that your words may be justi- so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Now, do you hear that? How how can he say that? He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. How does that make sense? He's sinned against a whole list of people. He's betrayed, he's murdered, he's manipulated. The list is endless. So how can he say to God, God, it's against you and you only I've sinned? Here is why. It's because in all of his brokenness, in everything he's got wrong here, he understands the glory of God. David isn't minimizing sin. He's not minimizing the effect of sin on people. He isn't denying that other people were affected by this. Instead, he's saying, God, I recognize all of my sin starts by wronging you. He says, All of my sin begins by failing to live, acknowledge, love, and live by your glory. And the moment I fail to do that, every sin is then possible. It's one of the reasons the Bible can describe sin as falling short of the glory of God. None of us would ever struggle with sin if we always lived in right response to God's glory. But we don't. So you won't understand sin until you understand glory. And you won't understand yourself or this world until you understand sin. But here is the last thing. You won't have hope until you understand glory. See, here is why else it matters. There's a verse that, frankly, we miss because, well, because of the rest of the chapter. But if you look at verse 3, there's a lovely way and a very small thing that verse 3 ends by saying. It says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Bazai in the land of the Chaldeans by the Cheba Canal and the hand of the Lord was upon him there, it was upon him there. I've already said that God appeared in Babylon, but let let me highlight this. It wasn't just what Ezekiel saw, it was where he saw it. God is appearing, he's speaking, he's radiating glory right there in pagan Babylon. In the center of everything that stood against all that they believed was good about God, God appears to his exiled people. To be in exile is by definition to be disorientated. No homeland, no roots, no security, everything familiar, everything loved has been left behind. The people here had so many doubts, so many questions. Surrounded by other gods, had their God forgotten them? Did he still love them? So far from the temple that they loved, could their God still be known? Is it all over? Do we just fade out and weep by the rivers of Babylon? But into all of that, God appears. To a shell shocked, to a shattered people, God comes. And with his presence, he says, I have not abandoned you. It brings hope. He's here, he's not forgotten his people. you know, he never forgets his people. Five years in exile before this vision comes. I'm not going to speculate on what they felt. But God in all of his shining splendor as he appears to Ezekiel says, it's not over. It's not finished. I'm here. But there's another emotion that comes with a hope, and it's—it's. I've got to say this, it's fear. See, this glory vision is ominous, too. There's a consistent presence of fire in the vision. Later on in the book of Ezekiel, uh, fire is used as an image of God's judgment. And elsewhere in the Bible, God is pictured as coming on the fires of judgment. The vision says, listen, he's here, but he's coming to judge his people. His people are rebellious. They're glory denying. That's why they were exiled in the first place. And God can't ignore that. See, here's why this matters. It's because, because we're still a people living in exile. Now, for most of us, that's not and probably never will be physical. But spiritually, every single one of us is an Exile. Every single one of us lives in spiritual exile because sin forces us from the good presence of God. We live east of Eden. We live out in the howling wilderness of sin. We want comfort. We want the presence of God, but we fear his glory, don't we? We fear it. So what hope for us in our rebellion? What does all this glowing imagery, a figure radiating with brightness, what does it remind you of? Would you remember the glowing, fiery splendor of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? As before the three disciples' eyes, he's transformed and he shines with glory. Or how about when John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, glowing, pulsating with light With a sound like rushing waters. And what does John do? He falls on his face. Here here is our only hope. That Jesus steps down into our exile. That Jesus appears to us. See, Jesus Christ had the glory of God. But when he came to earth, he emptied himself of that glory. What does that mean? It means that everything that glory entails, beauty and honor and importance, Jesus was stripped of it all. Stripped of it all. He lost all of the glory he had. Why? So someday we could be clothed with his glory. Jesus lost it so we could have it. See, that is the reason why when Jesus died, the veil was ripped in the temple. It means the glory of God is no longer fatal to us. It means the glory of God can come into your life. It can overwhelm in awe and splendour, but it comes as a comfort and a joy. See, Jesus brings us the glory of God. So, you say, let me say to you: maybe here's where, where you, you end with this. You say, "Listen, if God showed me a vision like this, I definitely would believe." God showed me himself in all of this glory. I would I would definitely have a response like Ezekiel, but what well, just hasn't happened yet. Here's the message of the gospel. Don't wait for a vision like this. Instead, come behold the Lord Jesus. Come look at Christ, and in him you will see all the glory of the Father. And he will invite you in to share in the glory. He will clothe you with the glory. That's why the New Testament says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light to shine in our hearts and gave us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ Jesus. Here is the invite. It's come bask in the glory. It's come enjoy the glory. It's come experience the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm... I'm so thankful that really that there is in this vision a message for all of us. It's not, it's not neat, it's not a packaged message, it's not even a particularly comfortable one in so many ways, but it is the one that we need to hear. It's that you're glorious, it's that you are high and lifted up. It's that you are seated enthroned above the heavens. It's that there is no one like you. It is that your glory is unfilmable. It is that your glory, even in its likeness, even in its outer fringes, is beyond our full comprehension. God, for those of us who just need to see and marvel again at your majesty, I pray we do it in joyful humility. Father, for those who need to hear the rebuke of your sovereignty today, that you are enthroned, you are king. And our life so often is lived doing everything to undermine your lordship. Where we need to hear that strong rebuke, may we hear it. But where we need to hear the comfort, the wonderful life-giving comfort that you are present and you're enough. If you can rule over the whole world, God, you can rule over my life. If you can rule over all history, you can rule over my anxiety. God, I pray in these moments we would bring those fears and anxieties before you and revel that you are the king. And Father, we thank you most of all that your glory now comes to us clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it means the glory doesn't destroy us and undo us, but instead the glory embraces and envelops us. And we thank you that we're brought into your warmth and life, so we rejoice in your glory. I pray for those who've never encountered Jesus today would be the day. Jesus, break forth, show how, how life-giving that glory is. And for those of us who know you, Lord Jesus, we're so sorry. We're so sorry where we live more consumed with the weight of other things. May your glory come with beautiful, life-giving weight into the midst of our lives, the midst of this church, our God, the midst of this city. And I pray we'd see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.